In this episode, I talk with Jay Dyer, who is the author of Esoteric Hollywood. He's also on the Alex Jones podcast. He has his own YouTube channel as well. He talks a lot about philosophy. And yeah, in this episode, we had a really interesting chat about his book, Esoteric Hollywood, and we went deep into the occult, the CIA, MK Ultra. Uh, he does a good, actually he has the best Terence McKenna impersonation I've heard so far, so you might enjoy that one. And just, yeah, we touched on psychedelics, the downfall of materialism, atheism, and yeah, you can check out the timestamps in the description box below. And if you do enjoy this podcast and want to support us, feel free to go on patreon.com slash yourmatetom and gain exclusive access to our podcast with me and my girlfriend. And yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, hope you enjoy this podcast and I'll catch you guys next time. Bye. I'd like, I'd like to just kind of sure. uh, focus on like esoteric Hollywood, the great reset. I know you've been making videos yeah, on that lately. Yeah, man. So yeah, tell us like what was this protest like anyway, and how is how did you end up meeting up with Alex Jones? So I mean, I've listened to Alex for a long time, all the way back to about two thousand three when he was discussing uh, the history of Skull and Bones, Bohemian Grove. That was my introduction to him, and I was kind of awake to conspiracy type material, the New World Order, that kind of stuff, but I never really got that deep into it until I, I saw his stuff. I got into, there was a documentary at that time going around called Loose Change. I don't know if you've seen that, but no. so I got introduced to like a whole other level through him. And then uh, I didn't know him at the time, but just started reading more and more. And then over time, uh, built my work, my essay, you know, video catalog. And then they reached out to me and said, you know, would you want to come on and host fourth hour. So for the last four or five months, I've hosted the fourth hour at least once every week or two. And then, um, <clears throat> got invited down to that protest. And, uh, I didn't really know what was, what to expect. I haven't really ever been to a protest that I can remember. <laughs> so it was all a new experience. I got there and as soon as, uh, you know, I walk up, they're like, here, here's the uh, bullhorn, start bullhorning. So I just grabbed the bullhorn and I don't even remember what I said because it took us like all night to drive down there. So I was wow. out of my mind, just tired. And, what, what was uh, the protest about? So Georgia was one of the key areas to where there was election shenanigans. Right. So uh, the first two days there was about, I don't know, a few hundred people. And then the third day there was thousands of people showed up. So it turned into this huge thing. I literally had no idea what to expect, but so we're just like riding around. We're going to the governor's mansion. We're protesting outside of his mansion, and the security detail everywhere. You feel like you're some kind of like important person because there's guys with like earpieces <laughs> running around. Like we've got right here. We're doing a sweep. We're doing a sweep. All right, it's clear. Come on, come on. Literally like that, like nonstop the whole time. So wow. Uh, spent a whole day with Alex eating hamburgers and and <laughs> doing an interview. Uh, it was wild. So that's that's what it was about. Hey, he seems like a fascinating character, man. He's like my favorite guest on the JRE for sure. He is. Uh, is he, the is he who person. he is on the yes. podcast? Yeah, he's okay. The same in person as he is on uh, shows. He's just a ball of energy. He's just like, ah, you know. And how did no. you? How did he end up inviting you over? Is it because of the esoteric Hollywood that you wrote, or? No, so I, I have talked about geopolitics and all of that stuff as well as Hollywood for a long time. It's just that I, I focused for a long time on the on the Hollywood stuff, and we did a TV show based on my book. 
so that was my main focus but i was also talking about that other stuff and um i think it was just his producer and people at his operation that liked my material and they'd watched a bunch of the debates that i'd done so i did debates with like muslims and atheists and so that kind of gained some uh, some audience traction and i think all of those together uh was what led to the invite to come you know do some hosting and then come down to to georgia and whatnot how many debates have you done do you reckon <laughs> Uh, well, we do them all the time, but prominent public debates, I would say we did. The uh, first one was Adam Kokash was my first public debate. Then JF was a big one. Um, then I did Stefan Molyneux, and I did Matt Dillahunty, and I did uh, some neo-pagan dudes, and then I did a couple more atheists. And, um, was that and like the last Sticks was... Hammer 666 or whatever? Oh, yeah. I forgot about Sticks. It was, that was more of a discussion. It wasn't really yeah. a formal debate, but... Uh, and then, yeah, I did one with uh, Dr. Shabir Ali, who's a, a pretty well-known Muslim apologist. So that all just kind of snowballed. After the JF debate, it was like, do another debate, do another debate. <laughs> you should, because, uh, man, your Terrence McKenna impression is like the best I've heard online. You should do like a pretend debate. Well, if you'd like me to do my Terrence, I'd be glad to do it. The only problem is that I have to consult with the mushroom before I actually did it. <laughs> So, Terrence, what, what, what do they mean when all is one? Well, all is one is what it means. It means that we're all one. It means that you're me and I'm you. And we, <laughs> we're all one happy family in the words of Barney. Oh, that's so good. Uh, it's funny because like, I've been like talking about Terrence McKenna lately because I think a lot of people in the Psychonaut community don't realize that at the end of his life, the mushrooms turned on him. So he had like a really horrific trip and he completely stopped oh, I didn't going. Even know that. Yeah, I he ended up completely got stopped going to that <clears throat> that space huh. and cuz I was talking to someone who was in his circle, so people listening take it for what it's worth, but he knew people who was in his inner circle and apparently the mushrooms turned on him because he wasn't like he was kind of just taking taking like too like just going in for the knowledge without kind of giving back sort of thing i don't know take that for what it's worth but something fascinating so i was at a, a conference I, I spoke at a thing last year in la it was at a, a movie studio ranch and they put me right next to his <clears throat> widow oh and wow. the whole time i didn't know i was next to, i would have gone and talked to her if i'd known that who she was but i just saw some woman over there and she had like a chunk of a tree branch that's supposed to get you stoned or something and i was like <laughs> what there's this one so this woman over here trying to get people to like lick a tree branch or something i was like this is crazy and then afterwards the people who scheduled the event they were like did you go talk to terrence's widow and i was like what what why didn't you tell me what was so that was his last wife from what i understand that he, he i don't got... even remember who it was yeah but it's, it's, it was his widow oh, okay interesting um yeah tell i would love to because I, I haven't uh, ended up delving into your book quite yet, but I'd, I'm really fascinating in the whole. I'm really fascinated about the whole concept of esoteric Hollywood and the the cult symbology that goes behind it. Like, can you just go into what is Hollywood? How did it get created? And we can just start from there. Well, Hollywood, I think everybody thinks is just a you know. Um, well, actually, nowadays probably everybody is pretty aware of it being kind of a propaganda engine. And um, it's not just a you know money making machine or a creative arts project. It's it's a lot more than that. And when I started my work on the book, it was actually out of my grad work. I, I was studying intelligence agencies, 
James Bond propaganda and movies. Mm. And so, uh, when I first heard about this idea that there's a deep intelligence connection to Hollywood, I kind of thought that was out there. This was about 2006 or seven. I was like, yeah, okay, maybe. Um, and then the more that I dove into it, uh, from a academic perspective, like the more links that you would turn up, the more you would find out, Oh, this famous A-list actor was actually a spy. Uh, you know, Cary Grant did spying, Jimmy Stewart did spying. So all these people was like, how are all these A-list actors spies? And then you find out that, even in the Soviet Union, like Stalin had famous actresses that were his right-hand spies. Oh, there wow. were German German actresses that were famous spies. Really? Um, yeah. Wow. And so the more that I kept turning this up, just in, in mainline histories, I was like, there, something's going on here. And I always liked movies. So I had a few classes in college that dealt with uh, Oliver Stone films. And, of course, Oliver Stone is well-known for conspiracies in Hollywood in his films. Uh, and so I read a bunch of his stuff or books about stone films, took a few classes on, um, film theory that analyzed stone films. And I was like, this needs to be a book. Mm. Uh, so I just started writing, churning out essays for about 10 years. And then I got a offer to put it into a book. And really it's just a reflection of, of looking at movies, um, on multiple levels. So what I'm trying to do in the book is not just look at, like, oh, there's an all-seeing eye here, so maybe it means something. Like, mm. that is there sometimes, but I'm interested in all the different levels to where, is this movie propaganda? Does it have a, an occult angle? Does this relate to, like, corporate propaganda? Does this relate to uh, intelligence agencies? Does the, the Pentagon have a relationship to this movie? So I just tried to throw it all into um, a multi-layered approach to analyzing film. Wow. Uh, what, what kind of movies stick out to mind that have the most kind of, uh, profound symbology behind it so the probably some of the ones that you would expect like i started out with um some of the more popular essays that i'd written like um i did kubrick obviously all the kubrick well most of the kubrick important ones like uh eyes wide shot the shining 2001 that's like the first 80 pages of the book and then i moved on to some of the like the alien entities kind of stuff with spielberg and how if we look back to H.G. Wells and these famous science fiction writers, they were actually propagandists. H.G. Mm. Uh, Wells is one of the earliest and most successful propagandists. He would actually do wartime propaganda. Um, and that was partly why his science fiction was so uh, successful was because he knew how to tap into the zeitgeist. And I don't think it's accidental that Hollywood has really promoted, you know, the whole uh, alien mythos. So I had to mm. delve into um, Spielberg films. Um, I did a lot of the dystopian stories that seem to be really predictive of where we're going now. So I did Logan's Run. I did Zardoz, Labyrinth. Well, that's not Labyrinth isn't uh, dystopian, but I did Blade Runner, Prometheus. Um, and then some of the weird kind of silly 80s stuff like Never Ending Story, Legend. And uh, several Bond films and how they relate to, because I was actually writing my thesis on Ian Fleming and James Bond. Ah, right. So I did Moonraker. Yeah. Uh, uh, Moonraker, Spectre, the new one. And kind of tied all that in together. Diamonds are Forever. Um, and then I did a bunch of Hitchcock and David Lynch stuff. So really the whole first book was centered around um, the big directors and their films. And then in the second book, I moved into more thematic topics of like the mafia and their relationship to mafias and Hollywood. 
um, films that deal with mind control uh, and geopolitics, um, the war on terror and how it transitioned into where we are now with just straight up dystopian <laughs> stories all the time. Yeah, man. Um, it seems to be yeah. everywhere. Very right. popular now. And like, do they, are they doing this on purpose? Like injecting all this symbolic, are like they trying to tell us subconsciously what's going on or are they just trying to put some stories in to kind of make us think a certain way or is it all the above? What's going on? It's all the above. That's a great question. Like, so in the second book, like right away, what I did was I looked at the, there was a FOIA request a couple of years ago that people put into um, figure out to what degree uh, major government agencies in the U.S. had invested in uh, film propaganda. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that they got back 4,000 pages of documents that the Pentagon, the CIA, the military, all of these different entities had um, in over 800 movies and 1,000 TV shows they had paid to have direct propaganda messages put in. This wow. is over the last few years. And that's just what's known. That's just one FOIA request. What organization is this? Is this like CIA or what's what's going on? It's all of them. So um, the the FOIA here, I'll read what it says. Uh, We recently put in our FOIA request for uh, documents relating to the U.S. government's influence in major TVs and movies. We got four thousand in response. And if you want to read their book, I'm citing, or actually, it's an essay. It's Alford and Secker's book, documents. Uh, exposed Hollywood movies promoting war on behalf of the Pentagon, CIA, and NSA. That's actually an uh, online piece, but they have a book about this. Um, but it's it's Pentagon, CIA, NSA, and military. And it's movies as innocuous as, uh, well, obviously the Marvel and DC entities, Transformers, James Bond, and then TV shows, Hawaii Five O, America's Got Talent, Oprah, Jay Leno, Cupcake Wars. <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah, so they have paid <laughs> Cupcake Wars. Positive, right? Military and Pentagon messages into something even as ridiculous as Cupcake Wars. Wow. I haven't even so, heard of that, but it sounds ridiculous. <laughs> it was just some stupid like food channel show where they were I don't know, like beating the shit out of each other with over cupcakes or something. Oh, and you said Throwing Marvel, cupcakes. man. That's I, I love Marvel movies. How how well, like what is Marvel saying? Like what's what's the symbology behind the MCU? Well, the right. So this, um, the documents just talked about what they had paid. I don't know that it, it doesn't list the specific messages, but uh, I covered a few Marvel things in my uh, essays, and my speculation would be that. Uh, you kind of have in the, the Avengers mm-hmm. installments the notion of nation states giving way to international organizations. That would be my guess because a lot of this this propaganda relates to moving into uh, globalization, moving right. into away from nation states and into a, a global kind of situation. So, that's what so that would be Civil my War guess, was but about I don't know to give their rights to exactly. the to the government. Yeah, exactly. Huh. And what you you mentioned aliens, like they're pushing the alien agenda. What what a why is this? What a, what do you believe aliens are? Uh, well, so at the movie level, I believe they're promoting that stuff um, on behalf of a larger agenda. That actually there are uh, there is documentation for this. There's a 1968 Brookings Institute paper, which is one of the top think tanks relating to NASA, where they talked about. 
that if there was the promotion of the alien myth and mm. narrative, that it would shake all the previous uh, Western civilization belief structure. So the Bible, anything like that that still remains would be gone, and it would merge a lot easier with the Darwinian mythos to promote a new grand narrative. So that's a 1968 uh, document that it's in my book, but it's referenced in Brenda Densler's book, who's an academic who studies alien cults. And she dug up this 1968 uh, think tank paper about how to, to utilize that. But I can give you a more recent example, which uh, Klaus Schwab, the top uh, World Economic Forum Davos globalist, when they put out their eight-point plan uh, as to what the um, Great Reset would be, point eight uh, in the written version, you can read that article, the point eight was alien life. So uh, my speculation is that they want to bring about a new mythology to help explain uh, man's origins and man's destiny uh, that would include aliens. Now, what are they? Um, I believe there's multiple layers going on with the alien stuff. I think that there are entities. I think they do exist. I think that they're spiritual beings. They exist on another plane. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's what a lot of people who have uh, the DNT experience or the LSD experience encounter. Um, I've had LSD experience. I've had bad trips. I've encountered those kinds of entities, so I know that there is a reality to that experience. Um, I think it is ultimately demonic in many cases, not every case. I'm not saying everybody's spiritual experiences are necessarily evil. In my case, I think it was a demonic experience. Um, right, like different species, almost like different species, do you think? Like there are certain aliens that are perhaps more malevolent and some that are more neutral, or do you think it's all part of the same thing? Well, I, I don't believe that it's like extra biological entities. I think that it, my view is spiritual entities. So right, I think like that there's angels and demons is, mm -hmm. is a basically the same thing that people are calling the, the sort of uh, out-of-body alien type experience. That's my view. Mm. Um, so if you read a book like um, there's an old work that you would like uh, called On the Celestial Hierarchy by Dionysius. Uh, it's a uh, early uh, Christian period work where they're where he's analyzing the hierarchies in the universe that exist in the spiritual realm hmm. and he, he is influenced uh, to a degree by neoplatonic thought but uh, dionysius traces out these different angelic hierarchies that are both good and evil so i would say that there are hmm. good and evil spiritual entities but um i would also say that it, i think a lot of the uh et alien type of stuff if you, if you read the Psychonauts, as I'm sure you have, um, you've you probably read those guys a lot more than I have. I've read Lily, uh, McKenna, Leary um, at length, but I think that what they're talking about is typically sort of the demonic type of stuff. Right. I actually haven't read too... I never got too much into Terrence McKenna, actually. Oh. No, no. Like, I've, I've read, like watched a few of his YouTube videos, and he has some interesting perspectives, but ultimately, I think he's off the mark on a lot of things that I, I don't agree with. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's interesting about, because I've actually seen a UFO once. This is completely sober, by the way. I don't know what it was. I didn't have like an experience like meeting a being necessarily, but it was definitely mm -hmm. a, yeah, weird, yeah, unidentified flying object. It's the only way I can describe it. I don't know what that was about. And I saw it with three I... other friends as well during the broad daylight, which was like the most yeah. bizarre part of it. Yeah, because in I Australia, there's a lot of those sightings. Is there really? Yeah. Okay. yeah. I think there's a multiple layers, levels to that type of stuff. I think that there are real 
entities that that can appear. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that there are government agencies and and structures that promote an alien mythology sometimes for uh, ideological psychological warfare uh, sometimes for cover actually i think that if you look at some of the bases where the alien nonsense is promoted in the u.s uh, i actually think they're doing like drug drug trafficking <laughs> oh, <really? laughs> uh, and other what yeah so so they use the alien thing as a cover oh area 51 ooh, alien. no it's not aliens they're doing like black market type stuff there so that's uh, right. my theory on on that and then um so some, I also think that sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, so I, the other component is uh, deception. Okay. Um, if you watch that documentary Mar- Mirage Men, no, which I, I think is a, what, what, is it's that, a great documentary. That that, that they, they interview a lot of the former counterintelligence people who uh, were involved in the alien jibber jabber. And they just talk about how, yeah, what we do is we pick people to feed them disinfo. And so I, I'm, I think that it's all those. It's not one thing going on. It's all those things. Right, right, right. It's like lots of things, like plants, for example. Some are medicine, some are poison. Same with humans. Some are good, some are bad, some are neutral. So it would make sense that in the alien or the spiritual dimension that it's probably a variety and of And the government things. black ops dimension too. Yeah, and it's it's hard to, like, I find it hard to trust. That's why I don't never really resonated with messing with the entity realm, just because even if you do come across something that seems nice and lovey, you never know. It could be like a dark entity pretending to be something good, or it could sometimes it could be the opposite. Something sometimes it could be a scary looking entity that's actually good. Who knows? But it's something that I don't have the. I have a limited perspective, so I, I can never really truly know. So I'd rather just skip the middleman and go straight to yeah God. <laughs> I think there's a there's a a commonality amongst like shamanic experiences. I have done a lot of research into that realm of. Um, comparative religion and one of the things they always talk about is that whether it's you know like Peru or like Mongolia mm-hmm. the tribal shaman hat there's a pattern to what they experience when they go into the spiritual realm and so typically they will undergo this kind of death rebirth and and di- dividing up like the shaman gets chopped up <laughs> like by the uh, entities and then he's assembled back together or sometimes oh. he, he's eaten and back up and then goes back together and then so when he comes back from that journey he's a new man so um just the mere fact that that experience exists in disparate cultures suggests that there's a reality to this spiritual experience yeah no, i'm not saying necessarily good but yeah for sure for sure and there's a yeah. lot of different you know with in terms of the shamanic world there's like a lot of uh yeah there's there are some people who are pure at heart, and, but then because now, especially with consumerism, there's a lot of money to be made. And so a lot of mm-hmm. shamans that have very bad intentions or huge egos go into it and they take advantage of white Westerners looking for a yeah. spiritual experience. I, I have a friend, Tristan, who he moved to, <laughs> he's expatriated to Ecuador and he laughs because all the boomers like fly down there to do their, you know, spiritual shamanic journey and it's it's like it's just uh these like brujos that are ripping them off and like come to my tent bro yeah come in my tent it's like the wives go in the tent he's like grabbing you know filling them up and like that's like three thousand dollars man thank you it's all part of the ceremony yeah wow that's crazy man because i actually uh one of the first retreats that i went to i found that i can't confirm that's why i don't want to name it just in case but i found out from a good source that he ended up being a, a pedophile. And in, in Peru, there's a lot of those, well, I'm sure 
a lot of parts of the world, but there's a lot of kind of pedophile rings and a lot of shamans get into like the spiritual warfare. Like one might get exactly. jealous of one and go into the astral plane, <laughs> throw a poison dart. And yeah, man, I've heard stories of even like literal, I'm not even talking like in the spiritual dimension, like literal frogs dropping from the ceremonial hut, like physically. Wow. Yeah, man. Like there's definitely some real power yeah. to this stuff. And that's why you got to be careful with this stuff and you got to discern yourself because i would say that at least me being generous i'll say at least 95 percent of shamans are full of caca they're not <laughs> yeah that's what that's what tristan says about ecuador but there so. are, i do believe yeah. that there are definitely some legit ones because when you talk to the people right. who have it who actually do it with honor and respect they speak they don't agree with how the majority of how psychedelic ceremonies are done and especially like some shamans even will mix a whole bunch of plants together, which can muddle up the energies instead of just sticking with the mm -hmm. one and giving too big of a dose or there's so many factors, man. And it's something that we just don't understand yet. Right. I, I don't even know if right. we will, but yeah, you talked about uh, like Terence McKenna, what, what, what specifically of what he talked about do you not resonate with? Well, I... I... I wasn't intending to dive into the psychonauts per se, but one of the things I do is what I call the global elite book series, where I, I just go into the writings of the elite over the last century. Mm -hmm. And I tried to do that to see if there was commonality amongst like the plan that they have. And sure enough, there is. So I've done about 50 of those books now that I have lectures on. But uh, one <clears> of the <throat> things that popped up was MKUltra. Uh, and so I tried oh. to read as much about that as I could, not just from conspiracy sources, but from academic sources and, and all yep. that as well. So that naturally led into the realm of the psychonauts. So uh, I'm not saying everybody who was involved in, you know, the, the Larry, Ken Kesey, uh, Abby, uh, Hoffman, uh, you know, Sandoz uh, domain, they're all uh, working with the CIA, but there is a clear... Um, military CIA MKUltra component to where all that comes from. Okay. So again, I'm not trying to over, I'm not trying to oversimplify it, but and if, if you wanted to, we can continue the where I got. In. Yeah. Oh, sorry. If you if you wanted to, we can continue this conversation no. another on another podcast, especially about like the psychonaut area. But maybe we can just touch on the MKUltra. Like, what what is MKUltra okay. and how did this start? And are they still continuing their operation? Right. Well, I was just going to say that's what got me into reading uh, McKenna and Leary and all them. But um, mainly about McKenna, I would disagree with kind of just his sort of pantheistic view. I think there's some problems in his in that worldview. And it's just kind of Gnostic, restating the Gnostic pantheistic perspective. But so MKUltra is just a program that was birthed uh, right around the time of World War II in the, the late 40s where they wanted to look into ways to find a truth serum. So really it was a military project where they were using cannabis, they were using um, different uh, uh, mushrooms that they had found to try to see if they could get people to tell the truth. They thought, well, mm. if we can get a truth serum, this would be, you know, ideal for confessions or, uh, you know, spies who uh, leave another country or whatever. And then the more they study, the more they realize that, you know, there's a lot of different possibilities here. <clears throat> and then big, Big Pharma got involved through Sandoz Pharmaceutical Corporation. Um, some big banks got involved. Uh, J.P. Morgan sent Gordon Wasson to uh, Latin America, South America to find different types of uh, mushrooms that could be 
uh, utilized in these projects. And the this is what led eventually to the synthesis of LSD. Uh, not played a key role in a lot of different um, experiments in MKUltra, but MKUltra was just one of a whole mm. series of projects where they were trying to study the mind and the psyche. And I mean, there's really no way to just it, for mind control. I mean, it's wow. just the simple. Well, what, what do they do in, in the in the experiments? Well, we only have about half uh, of what they did because the other half was destroyed, I think, by Helms. Or, uh, one of the CIA oh. directors uh, destroyed half of the, the research. Oh, seven no. of the boxes survived and seven were destroyed. And then they had the hearings, uh, the House hearings on. So this is Kiltra. all legit and, stuff? Like this isn't just like some crazy... No, this is all public. This oh, is all public okay. uh, <clears throat> documents because they had hearings, right? So the... Uh, house hearings on uh, the mind control project and they supposedly shut it down but if you read a lot of the researchers who were correct back in the 70s and 80s that wrote on it like uh, Walter Bowert or uh, John Marks in their books they said that this research isn't really shut down it's just moving into different arenas so for example MK Ultra just was renamed MK search and they just moved it to a, a different military base, and they just said it was about biological warfare. Of course, they did. So it, it transferred from you know psyche research and drug <clears> research <throat> to bio warfare, but it's all the same stuff. So, um, so some of the experiments, for example, mid, uh, one of the more famous ones that people know about is Midnight Climax, where the CIA contracted out to the mafia to get one of the whorehouses that the mafia owned. Uh, to to drug the Johns who were coming in to uh, have their fill with the ladies of the evening, and wow. unbeknownst to them, they were tripping balls. So that was one famous uh, experiment where they wanted to see how the people would re react to being drugged without knowing it. Um, Whoa. Uh, other experiments were, for example, Dr. Esther Brooks was uh, not so much on the drug side, but he was doing the hypnosis stuff where he was trying to create the hypnotic courier where you could have a uh, split psyche and one psyche within the uh, DID MPD person would know facts about, you know, some military operation or something. And then the handler, the intelligence handler would know the key word to bring forth that alter. Now, Esther Brooks claims to have been successful in this. And this is kind of where pop culture has, you know, bird this whole mythology of the Jason Bourne, you know, mind control assassin type of thing. That all comes out of wow. real programs as to how successful it really was. I guess that's debatable. But um, I would say that they probably did succeed in some of this. But in my view, the real um, the locus of the, the purpose of all this wasn't to create individual assassins. It was rather to know on a micro scale what you could do to the psyche to do that on a macro scale to the public. That's much more valuable, right, to the entities interest, interested in this, psychological warfare, et cetera, mm. um, than just being able to program an assassin. I mean, that's, you can hire, you know, somebody to do that. You don't need, uh, you know, to mind control somebody to do that, although you could. Um, the ability to control the masses through mass media is much more valuable and they will use that in culture research in my view that's that's what it's really about well did, did this backfire in any way do you think i mean there have been lawsuits and there have been people who i mean there's a famous clip of bill clinton actually apologizing for him oh really uh, i would take that 
I would take that apology with a grain of salt. <laughs> I'm so sorry for what we did to you. And by the way, uh, if you'd like to come with me on Air Force One, I'll make you happy. I'll make you right. So yeah. I wouldn't buy much into that. Was that was just PR? But um, just for the press. Aside yeah. from um, aside from the public apologies and lawsuits, uh, no, I don't. I don't think uh, there have been a whole lot of repercussions. In fact, I think that most of what we see in pop culture nowadays the toxic aspects of pop culture is that's the real m culture mm. we're all under m culture in my view and is most if not all movies kind of in on this or are they do you think there are like some genuine directors and super famous triple a movies that are like right. they haven't uh, sold no, their soul so to speak yeah I mean, I wouldn't use a sweeping statement. I, I think that there's a lot of people who work in movies or in the arts who are legitimate and they, you know, they're just putting out their craft and, and doing what they want to do from an artistic perspective. But I think that when you get into like the big studios and the big blockbusters, I think those are pretty consistently, you know, controlled propaganda. Totally. Wow. Christopher Nolan too? Don't say it's Christopher Nolan. <laughs> I mean, I've done a lot of analyses of Nolan's films. I mean, I, again, I don't want to speak in sweeping ways as if every single person is like fully in on some conspiracy. But um, again, I think that would be an oversimplification. So, I like, I, I like Oliver Stone. He's made some of the you know biggest films in in Hollywood history. Yeah, for sure. uh, I think I think that he has put out in in his mind legitimate critical messages of the system of the establishment. Um, so I don't, again, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but I think that especially in the last 10 or 20 years, generally speaking, most of the blockbusters um, that come out do have pretty clear social engineering, you know, messages. I don't think there's much dispute of that, but mm. I mean, as to Christopher Nolan's intentions, I, I couldn't say, I mean, I typically like his films. Yeah, me too. I think he makes it awesome. Same with James Cameron. He's one of my favorites. Uh, but even Terminator 2, for example, I feel like in many ways that's kind of coming to fruition. Yeah, well, the weird thing about the Terminator franchise is that if you read uh, Annie Jacobson's book, uh, Pentagon's Brain, which is a history of DARPA, uh, I did a lecture on her book, and sh she just went to all the DARPA people and did interviews with them and a lot of the MIT people. And um, the way she characterized it towards the end of the book is that literally James Cameron and I forget who she mentions, Kathleen Kennedy or somebody, but some of these big producers and directors, like they were consulting with the Pentagon consistently. Oh, really? And it's I didn't know a that. symbiotic, it's a symbiotic thing where people from the realm of the arts will talk to people at DARPA and people at DARPA will talk back and forth to them. So it's a both and it's not like DARPA tells James Cameron what he has to put in there. It's like, it's, it's a, it's a back and forth, mm. but that's been going on for a long time. Yeah, well, because I can imagine even from an artistic perspective, when you want to make an immersive movie, you want to get it right, you know? So, and James Cameron definitely seems like the person who would immerse himself in this. Well, I think my suspicion is that uh, when Cameron was talking to, you know, like Pentagon level people and he was making films like T2, I mean, that's I mean, obviously there's not going to be like Arnold's walking around, like per se, but. Um, but the idea of Skynet is real. Mm. 
that's a real Pentagon thing. What company do you think is like the closest to Skynet? My view is that uh, the the space program, uh, like NASA, that that's more of a front for a inner kind of private black budget space program, mm. which I believe was not so much about you know you know what SETI is. No, no, what's that? Well, back in the eighties and nineties, there was that that famous. Did you ever see that movie Contact with with old Matthew McConaughey? Uh, I, I, I've heard uh, of it. I haven't seen it unfortunately. <laughs> I'll, you ain't I'll never seen Jodie Foster. <laughs> she looks like my aunt, but I'm hitting on her the whole movie. <laughs> oh. So, uh, all right, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the <laughs> No, time. keep you going, know, keep going. I'm going to tell you my, I'm going to drive out Lincoln out into space. <laughs> you said you like Christopher Nolan. Have you ever seen a, you ever seen a Lincoln driving into space? <laughs> anyway, so in, con- in contact, um, th- they're at the Arecibo installment, which is this big, dish that's real where they were supposedly sending emails right out into space hoping for alien contact so i'm just making the point that in my view um i tend to think a lot of that nasa alien space stuff was really more of a front for the erection of uh um, a global satellite surveillance grid which is what they're rolling out now so i think um uh, what's uh, Elon Musk's thing? Uh, SpaceX. Yeah. Well, yeah. no, he's got his uh, the thing that he's rolling out with uh, the um, satellites. He's got an, a thing. I forget what I said. Oh, it's right. off the top of my head. Right. Skylink or something like that. Okay. Okay. Anyway, so I, I actually think that a lot of uh, those private entities are in on that, and that it's not really about space travel. It's more so about erecting what Klaus Schwab writes about in his book. Uh, I thought I had it, but um, the integrated uh, surveillance system. And do you think this is all connected to, like MK Ultra, for example? Do you think yeah, it's all? Absolutely. Yeah. And um, in fact, I can prove that with the DARPA book, uh, Annie Jackson's book, um, the Rand Corporation book, Soldier of Reason by Alex Abeya, and if you read John Marx's book, um, uh, CIA and the Search for the Manchurian Candidate, which is one of the early. Uh, critiques of MK Ultra. The last chapter in John Marx's book is crucial because he says he wrote this in, in the late '70s. He said that as MK Ultra continues, what they're going to do is strive to create the transhuman super soldier, and so that's going to be the embedding of the microchip. It's going to be all of that stuff. I mean, J- John C. Lilly, uh, he was one of the first people working on implantable microchips, so he wanted to study brain waves, and, and he, oh. when he was doing all of his LSD research. Dolphins. Was that the it was guy who did about, the ketamine? Like, a lot of ketamine and talked to dolphins or something? Uh, and he made, he, he invented he the isolation this. tank or something? Am I thinking of yeah. the right guy? That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Wow. So John C. Lilly, John C. Lilly was part of MKUltra. Um, um, what about Tim- Timothy Leary? Was he a part of the CIA? Well, he was an asset that they used to promote the, the drug, yeah. Whoa. I mean, he says that openly. Just go oh, on YouTube really? and... Yeah. Oh, so this is this isn't even a no. It's not a, a conspiracy anymore. Um, there's a clip of him talking about. He says, "If you if you like the '60s counterculture revolution, he's like you can thank the CIA because we gave it to you." What? Are you serious? That's crazy. That's serious. Yeah. Wow. So they they pushed it. Interesting. And did, so did I'll tell you? A, I'll did, tell you a book you oh, like. Oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, have you heard of Dave McGowan? 
No. Who's that? So uh, he uh, passed away a couple of years ago, but he was uh, a researcher who wrote a book called Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon. And it's a it's a history of the Laurel Canyon counterculture drug scene. And his main thesis in the book, he's really the first to really pioneer the, the theory that um, not all the counterculture, but the majority of the 60s Laurel Canyon counterculture was promoted by the establishment. Whoa. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll keep in touch and give us some recommendations. It's a great book. I, yeah. I highly recommend that. You'd like it. Wow. And uh, fuck, man, that's crazy. Um, and in terms of like, let's say, MK Ultra and CIA and, you know, the powers that be pushed Hollywood, what exactly are they promoting? Are they, would you say they're promoting more a materialistic atheist type of view or more along the lines of the new age, non-duality, we're all gods kind of view? Both. I think that the, we've seen since the advent of uh, Darwinism and naturalism a, a heavy push for atheism and materialism. But I think that's kind of giving way to um, what they want to push with this kind of New Age stuff. And by the way, a lot of the people involved in the, the rise of the Internet were also connected to the Esalen Institute, which is the ideological origin of the New Age. So the whole New Age movement comes out of Esalen, and that was all uh, – funded by the establishment um it's a big think tank out in big sur new agey kind of thing um, right because they, they both promote moral relativism at the end of the day oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and um so yeah, in my, well, my view that's where they want to go is to promote a new uh kind of a new religion that's all just manufactured made up and do you think that's because people are just kind of breaking away from materialism because you can have a direct spiritual experience and because I've, I've known a, a lot and heard of a lot of atheists who have completely let that go and believe in God right. because they've had a direct spiritual experience. I think the atheism and materialism, uh, they function like a wrecking ball. So you can promote those in a society. Uh, if you look at the history of like the Bolsheviks and how Bolshevism uh, changed Russia, if you read Anthony Sutton's book, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, you can see these as ideological technologies to wreck a region, but they don't have a whole lot of holding power. So people, humans are kind of naturally driven towards the divine. They don't, they don't stay with atheism very long. And that's why it doesn't, it, it usually mm. fades away and gives way to something more like yeah. new age, something like initiate, initiatic religions, etc. Yeah. Cause it seems like atheism is, or materialism is sort of like a very idealistic in your head sort of philosophy that doesn't translate well in reality, at least long term. You know, if, if you are oh, on a genuine search right. for and, truth. And, mm. and when people try to enforce that and make reality submit to that weird ideal, that's what leads to the mass chaos and, and the death in those regimes because it, it doesn't work. Has there been any successful atheist or uh, atheist society? I guess it depends on how we define success. I mean, if you define True. success as like uh, material wealth, uh, high, uh, high standard of living, I mean, most of the modern Western world is more or less atheistic. Uh, I mean, you can have a religious view, but most people don't really take it very seriously. So if mm. success means, um, you know, standard of living in a sense, yes. But, you know, you, what you value, your value judgments are going to be conditioned by your worldview. So. Right. 
and sometimes and you know sometimes you what works in the short term doesn't necessarily right hold or, up or maybe it's not a good thing to have like maybe, maybe uh you know having a whole bunch of junk isn't necessarily a good thing <laughs> <laughs> it's true like can you still man the atheist or the materialism uh worldview like what what makes it so appealing do you think for people a, uh, a combination of things make it appealing. I think that if you get um, rigid, stultified, uh, empty traditions in, in the realm of religion, it gives way usually to the reaction of some form of um, atheism, rationalism. Uh, no better example than the Enlightenment. I mean, you had legitimate corruption in the papacy in the uh, Western um, religious sphere at that time, and that led to the Protestant Reformation. It led to the Enlightenment. And so there's a legitimate criticism and problem, but the problem is that humans oftentimes swing in the pendulum to the opposite. So it's like, oh, if you know the, the papacy's bad, then we got to be atheists right, and destroy right. all religion. Ego backlash. So yeah. you get that sort of dialectical extreme, and uh, so that's one reason why atheism is successful is because there is legitimate uh, corruption in the religious, the um, institutional religion is what I'm trying to say. Um, it's also, I think, appealing on another level because it appeals to baser desires. So you feel like, oh, uh, you know, I've been repressed. Uh, so now I can, you know, put my PP anywhere and that's freedom. <laughs> but the problem, but the problem yeah. is that if we reduce freedom to just like, you know, biological sexual drives, we're in a way becoming another type of slave. So right. then we're enslaved to our biological drives and we don't have self-control so that's another danger and actually there's a lot of history in terms of psychological warfare where um just from a perspective of warfare you can debase your your enemy through enslaving him through exposing him to toxic culture there's a lot of different ways that that can be done so um, that's part of why atheism uh, becomes successful and i would add that uh, really powerful wealthy people can actually pay to have atheism promoted Really? What, what do you mean by that? Well, for example, um, when the Bolsheviks took over, uh, they were funded by um, very wealthy Western elites. Who's the who, Bolsheviks? Who, so this is the, the the revolution in Russia when when Russia became atheist. When now they, they weren't immediately Soviet, so you had this period when the the atheist revolution in in Russia happens, nineteen seventeen. Uh, okay. It leads to a, a few provisional governments. Then you get like the, the Trotsky, Lenin, Stalin stuff. Then it becomes the Soviet, right? Mm. So what I'm saying is that, that that's kind of a classic example of very wealthy Western interests, um, elites in Wall Street and in, in banking institutions, they funded that revolution. Mm. You can't have a revolution without money. Like you, all revolutionaries need money even if they're idealistic and they don't believe in capitalism, like they need money. So uh, uh, if you just think about it from a, because some people think, well, that's just, that's conspiratorial. This is too conspiratorial. Well, just think about it in terms of warfare. Hmm. Like if you wanted to defeat an opponent, um, a rival country, a rival village, one way you could do it is to foster division within their society. Right. Or introduce something that kind of fragments the, Exactly. It's sort of like how, you know, the colonialists I mean, just gave alcohol it. to 
the indigenous people all over the world. There you go. It happens Perfect. right here in Australia, you know. Uh, the opium wars. Yeah, yeah. And all right, but what about, you know, atheism? Isn't that just pro-science? Isn't religious just some prim primitive ideology that we need to let go that's just destroying society? Like, don't we need to grow up and be rational? No, because there's no such thing in my in my view. There's <laughs> no. no such thing as a yeah, <laughs> as a new. There's no such thing as a neutral position. So okay, um, every worldview has some uh, governing assumptions that relate to what you could call a philosophy. So the domain of knowledge, epistemology, ethics, right and wrong, and metaphysics. What's real and what's not real. So even if you think you're just a purely neutral, scientifically minded person, you're going to have some kind of assumptions that govern how you interpret mm. the facts of those three domains. And that's a worldview. And so there's no such thing, in my view, as a purely neutral scientific worldview, because just take, for example, um, should we follow scientific truth? Well, yeah, right. If you have that that view, you say that we should follow truth that science can give some approximation of truth. Well, a should is a value judgment, right? So already we see that the position is is value laden, right? And so that's the point is that you can't have a purely neutral position. You're already assuming um, oughts and shoulds, but science can't tell you what you ought and should do. Hmm. So we just, a, we just assume, need, right? Right, but like, just studying objects or phenomena, which is what science is supposed to do. I mean, yes, you have a theory and you have, uh, you know, you, you scientific method, et cetera. But what I'm saying is that you, you can't uh, get value judgments from events or from objects. So that's part of your interpretive scheme that you use to mm. interpret the world. The, the way Hume said it was that you can't get an ought from an is. So science can, can investigate the world, mm -hmm. tell you what things are the case, but it can't tell you what you ought to do. And this is the problem with a purely scientism-based worldview is that, I mean, what if I come up with a theory, let's say that pure on the basis of pure science, quote unquote, that um, I believe I'm the highest evolved creature and I should pick a harem of, of women to be in my cult and I should murder everyone else in the world. And then I can be the god emperor of a future race, like a like a Moonraker Hugo Drax type of worldview. <laughs> now, you may say, well, that's crazy. But but how can you tell me that's wrong? Right. You need you can't on a basis of scientific data. Right. This is called in, in epistemology, the, the problem of the underdetermination of data. It can't tell you which paradigm or system is the one to pick or prefer. Hmm. Yeah, this is sort of like where the, the non-dualist and the pure, the materialist kind of share the view of uh, there is no such thing as right or wrong. But they say this ideal, ideally, but in reality, they clearly do believe in a right or wrong. Because, you know, otherwise, why shouldn't you yeah, just do whatever you well, want? Well, they, don't, they, don't they believe by saying that that you ought to accept their argument that there's no such thing as right and wrong? Hmm. Well, once you said ought, you've entered into the domain of ethics. Hmm. Is it something like like numbers, for example? Is that something that we just kind of assume? Like, is, does is mathematics like this objective reality? So, like the Mandelbrot. Like, can you just go into maybe a little bit on the metaphysics of numbers, and what does that say about reality? 
I think so. Absolutely. I would say that um, numbers are a great uh, example of something that we don't have empirical evidence for. Mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're obviously not uh, equatable to matter. Uh, and in all forms of language, meaning, predication, sentences rely on the ability to pick out objects as one thing and to predicate distinctions to them to point out the many. So uh, even sentences presuppose number in some way to be meaningful or useful. And so we know that numbers and, and basic numbers like one, two, and three, and the, the tetrad that, you know, the tetractus and so forth that come from that, as, as Pythagoras argued, they're fundamental to human experience, to uh, how we can speak of and understand the world. And they're an easy way to show that the world cannot be reduced to uh, physicalism or pure materialism. And so, yes, I would say that we have to assume them in predication. Uh, it's, and I don't even think that's, con that's, that's controversial. Now, people will debate whether that means numbers are real, but I'm glad you mentioned the Mandelbrot set because that's a, a classic example of something that is not in the human mind. Mm. Um, it's in nature, but not in an idealized form. So there's a uh, theoretical um, infinity-related set. Uh, there's many of them, but um, if you took any Mandelbrot set and you put it into, uh, you know, an XY graph and you show that pattern. It's not something that can be contained in the human mind. Right. And mm -hmm. we know that it's real. So what this shows is that numbers are not social constructs. Mathematics is not a social construct. It's not made up by the human mind. It's discovered. Right. So Roger mm -hmm. Penrose, the famous uh, mathematician, this is one of the points that he makes about uh, uh, mathematical objects is that they're, not inventions, their discoveries. And mm. that means that the human mind, the human mind can't be the source and the limit of numerical objects. I, uh, I, I would agree with that. And does this kind of uh, uh, dissolve the materialistic paradigm? Do they, what, what's the argument I against this? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, I, mean, I think it's one of many arguments that dissolves the materialistic paradigm. I think the um, the argument about the naturalist or determinist fallacy disproves it, which is, uh, if you saw the debate I did with JF, that's essentially the argument I made with him, which is just that if what you're saying is true, you couldn't posit that it's true because you would be merely a determined chemical reaction. Mm. And so there's no such thing as trueness or you as an agent making decisions and, you know, getting royalties for your book or whatever, because it's just you're just part of a determined uh, causal chain. So there's no uh, will, agency, or uh, uh, personhood. It's just what is. It's just chemical reactions. And so there's an illusion of choice, right? Sam Harris, he, he makes this kind of an argument. Yep. Um, I think that is another easy way to refute materialism. Um, uh, there's a lot of different routes that you could take the reputation of materialism, meaning itself, concepts. Uh, if you try to reduce, so you and I are having an exchange, um, for meaningful exchange, we have to have some information content that's conveyed, you know, through voice, through hearing, through vocal cords, blah, blah, blah. But the content and meaning of the sentences that I'm saying to you that are going into your ear, none of that is reducible to the sound wave 
mm. or to the brain states. Yeah. So where is the content in this exchange? That's another, I think, powerful, easy refutation of the materialist paradigm. But there's many of these. Mm. I would love to see you debate Richard Dawkins. <laughs> He's a funny character. Maybe one day. I mean, um, you know, Matt Dillahunty and I had, a, had an interesting exchange. But yeah. uh, I watched that. Uh, how, how did you think that went? Because every time, like, if you read the comment section, it, it's funny how, like, depending on which echo chamber you're listening from, because you go true. on his comment section and it's like, oh, Jay got owned, and then you go on your comment section and it says the opposite. Like, how, how do you think that went, honestly? It went pretty much the way that I expected. Um, I've been debating the atheist materialist paradigm for about 20, 18, 20 years. So I don't think I'm ever going to hear any argument I haven't already heard. Uh, mm. So most of what Matt said, I'd kind of already heard. Um, I, I think Matt's a great orator. He's got a lot of rhetorical skills, uh, but I think he really fell short when it came to the conceptual categories that I was making the argument on. So I don't, I don't think he understood those. Um, he didn't know what I meant when I was talking about different ways to prove different types of things. He just kind of assumed that everything has to be proven in an empirical way. Right. Um, there's a lot of, it's very easy to disprove that. Right. It's like, you have itself. to play the game in, you have to play the rules in my game, you know? Yeah. It seems uh, like so that. basically just simply put, I don't think he grasped what the transcendental argument was. Was it in your debate where he, I don't know if it was, maybe it was a different video, but I remember him saying that porn addiction isn't real. And that's sort of like, whoa, 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 hang on. I'm pretty sure even scientifically speaking, it's a very real addiction, but he outright said that. So, uh, I don't know. I don't, he may have said that and I just don't remember. I don't recall, yeah. but maybe he did, but it, yeah, that seems odd. Uh, Something uh, that stuck out. Not, I'm, like, I'm not hang sure on why that second. would be controversial. <laughs> like that's like, is that controversial? I feel like it is because it's like, I don't know, maybe he just wants to justify jacking off and doesn't want to see anything wrong with it. Who knows? I mean, we all, you know, maybe. porn's very enjoyable, but it's obviously, I believe anyway that it kind of drains your life force and it's probably not good. I think most people would agree with that, no matter yeah. what ideology you believe in. I think it's a scientific fact at this stage. Um, yeah. Yes, man, we're, we're, any, we're, anyone who has a PhD in Kumarology will tell you that. It, yeah. Exactly. Where do you think this is going, man? Like just in terms of your, you, cause you made a video on the great reset. I haven't had a chance to, uh, see it yet. What, what is the great reset? Where, where is this society going? What's the, what's the next phase? So this is a plan, uh, that relates to technocracy. It's the idea that they can implement a, um, more or less an AI based world government. And to do that, they kind of have to uh, collapse or show the impossibility of the previous systems working. So they'll use a lot of buzzwords like sustainability and green and all this kind of stuff. But really, that's just window dressing to bring in um, what Klaus outlines in his book, uh, Fourth Industrial Revolution, which is to say that we've seen previous revolutions, uh, you know, the uh, mechanization of industry, industrial revolution, blah, 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 computer revolution. Um, now we're going to have this fourth industrial revolution, which will be the transition to AI, to smart cities, to uh, sustainability, to um, reduced population, to no uh, property ownership. So he's very candid that oh, you no. won't own any property. You serious? Uh, you'll be more. Is this yeah, like that, actually? That was... Is this like a legitimate plan that's going to happen? Do you think this will be implemented, or do you think we need to 
as human. No, I think as a they're rolling it out right it. now. Fuck, man, that's not. So the so the eight point <laughs> the eight points that he gives according to the World Economic Forum. Uh, let's see, I thought I wrote it down, but. Uh, so they, they put out a video that went viral, um, and then they deleted it, <laughs> but, uh, the, the, the article that's the basis of the video is still up. So you can go what, read the article. It's all public. Um, uh, the points are, um, you won't own property. Everything will be rented via Amazon and drones. Uh. It's called the circular. This is called the circular economy. Uh, the second point is, uh, there won't be uh, meat. You'll have like rationed food. Uh, it'll be a vegan diet with rationing, no meat. Um, uh, borders will go away. There'll be more of a integrated global community where you're all under a centralized AI government, uh, social credit score. Um, uh, what else does he say? Uh, the West will have to collapse, basically. He says it'll be tested to the breaking point. Um, he says that there will be... Um, Alien life and an alien mythology. That's literally all what? all in. Yeah. Oh, man, I've got to read this article. That's that's insane. Sounds like something from yeah, a science from like fiction the, movie. Some of the, this is from the wealthiest people on the planet. So. Wow. Man. No meat? I don't know if Australians are going to fly with that. We have a lot of... <laughs> well, you also, you guys also have a lot of vegans down there, so they're, they're already pushing <laughs> that vegan. It's true. It's true. I actually had a crocodile the other the other week for the first time what did it was it taste like it was like a, a fishy tough chicken it's quite nice and because they're, they're yeah even kangaroos like they're they're everywhere man it's actually a very right. sustainable to eat kangaroo <laughs> and it's nice my dad killed a snake once i had snake one time we live in tennessee you see snakes a lot so. did it taste like chicken? it was the same way it was it was real meaty gamey fishy weird taste Oh, man, I I can see like where I live is like I'm on the outskirts of Melbourne and Melbourne is very definitely the most kind of like feminist, socialist kind of realm, mm -hmm. ultra left kind of culture. Uh, so that's why I'm actually getting the hell out of here because <laughs> I can see actually we spent millions and millions of dollars to change the traffic lights so that it's a female. Yeah, that's that's what's <laughs> important to us. It still makes me angry, actually, when I see. It. I'm like, really? And isn't that sexist in of itself? Because then you assume that women have to wear dresses. But anyway, that's a whole different conversation. Oh, that's a good point. Wow. <laughs> yeah, man. That's uh, sad. So, are, so you're moving what to like the countryside of Australia? Yeah, I'm pretty much. I'm on the country. I'm like, if I leave, if I went five minutes east, I wouldn't be Melbourne anymore. I'm very farmland, very close. Like right. I, have, I have a friend who owns a farm. You know, he's like a fourth generation beekeeper. He has eggs so i've got i've got access right. to uh good people who have who have land but i want to go up north kind of to queensland yeah just away from the the cities kind of thing because i, 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 I don't like where thing. it's going I, I was i was city based last year and then now i'm in the rural area of tennessee so i'm like two hours outside of nashville so nice how's that going for you very rural yeah <laughs> How are the people there? I mean, I, I don't like the Tennessee weather, except, I mean, I'm happy to be rural, but uh, I was in Florida previously, so the, the weather's a lot better in Florida. I like beaches, warmth, but... Have you found, uh, like, your mental health kind of just increased ever since you moved away from the cities? Well, I wasn't in a big city. I was okay. outside of uh, uh, Jacksonville, so I was in St. Augustine, which is a really, really nice city, so... I mean, I would prefer to be in St. Augustine than Tennessee, but I moved to Tennessee. I, I got a good deal on a house was one of the main reasons I moved to Tennessee. So, 
Yeah, well, that's why I'm I'm going to go on with my girlfriend to travel up north and just, yeah, suss out the area, see which place kind of fits and where we're going to move. But no, Australia is beautiful, man. I'm actually really... I know that we're trapped here, but it's like it's not the worst country in the world to be trapped in. You know? I've heard it's awesome. I mean, my uh, it is my yeah. my wife has she's been there. She spent I think two or three weeks there. She said it was really cool. Oh, nice. Where about did you go, Jamie? Where'd you go? What's <laughs> that? Where? Byron Bay. Ah, uh, yeah, the hippie capital of Australia. Uh, yeah. it's nice that's like I, the, I wouldn't live there the, and, and, uh, the, the pretentious Vegemite white... mate yeah yeah yeah, yeah the... everybody eating their Vegemite <laughs> how often do you hear people doing the worst accents do you hear that all the time actually the only American that I've heard who's nailed the Aussie accent is Robert Downey Jr the only one I've heard in my life he does like he nails it everyone else okay. it's like it's a little bit too cartoony, crocodile dundee. It's overboard, mate. <laughs> if I was to try to talk like Mel, I'll get me veggie, Mike. You sound like how Simpsons impersonate okay, Australians. So this is Simpsons yeah. version. Of the... <laughs> okay. Call out a knife. It's the same way if you live in the South. You... Yeah, yeah. When you, when you hear people in the US try to do the Southern accent, it's terrible. It's like... Well, I'm going to go down yeah. to Tennessee. <laughs> it's, it's like, dude, you're way overboard. Way like, cartoonish, yeah. But, yeah. man, I, I love being here, man. I think that we have an, a very special land here. And, uh, yeah, just a lot of space, man. And just the wildlife and kangaroos. And they're everywhere. So, I don't know how they're, they're going to stop people from eating kangaroos. Because they're everywhere, man. Like, it's not hard. Like, even, like, if you just drive 30 minutes... Through any direction, you're most likely going to see a couple dead kangaroos on the side of the road. Well, the, I think my suspicion is that the so they have sort of decade-based plans. So yeah. um, the the goal there's like 2030 goals, 2050 goals. So my suspicion would be like the full implementation of that would be when they have kind of you know global mm. dr- drone surveillance force. So um, it would be like drones that would watch you and surveil you and see what you're up to. Oh, so that would be man. how they would try to stop you. Don't say that. That's, I don't think this is ultimately. Me. <laughs> I don't. I don't think it'll be ultimately be successful. But I think that's what they would try to They're do. They're trying to do right. Yeah, because even like I know some. It even triggers people. It's like how can you talk about spirituality and have psychedelic experiences and still eat animals and all that kind of stuff? And I went vegan, man, for like three years. And my health completely fell apart. And you always hear the yeah, same exactly. thing. Like you didn't do it right. And like, yeah, actually I was eating healthier than 99% of people on the planet. And my mental health fell apart. I went pale. I went like, I looked like a junkie, man, pretty much. And it was actually my girlfriend who was vegan at the time. who told me like, you might need to actually eat some animals. And this is when, <laughs> right. I, when I switched to eating like, uh, and in Australia as well, we're very lucky that I think at least 70% of our cattle is grass fed. So when you throw the argument of like, yeah, but most of the grains and soy gets fed to the cattle anyway, it's like, yeah, not where I live. So that doesn't really apply to the cow mm. that, that I eat. And uh, yeah, man, it just changed my life completely. Right. I had like a soul gasm in a lot of ways and I got color back in my face. I was like centered and it just changed the game for me. I haven't experienced a, not even a season of depression for more than two years at all. Like not even an issue right. for me. That was like the the last piece of the pie that I needed to have. And well, yeah, I, I totally agree. I, went, I mean, I was never vegan, but I, I was eating a lot of vegetables for a long time, and I was having gut issues. And um, I listened to Michaela Peterson and my buddy Tristan 
mm. do some shows and uh, shout out to Tristan over at Primal Edge Health. He, he, I thought he was crazy, but he, he talked me into trying out carnivore keto and like all my issues went away. So, wow, you should try some kangaroo. It's really good. <laughs> if you come visit Australia, if we don't have like total lockdowns forever, I will. Yeah, man, I'll hook you up if you end up coming down here. But, uh, yeah, it's something that, and I, I, I get it. I, I understand the psychology of the vegan. And I, I like I said, I, I was there. I understand. And I don't even know if it's bad for 100% of the population because I don't want to be dogmatic about it either because some people can really go years without it. I don't know if that's the case, but apparently some people can go be healthy with it. But for me, it's I don't, just, know, I I really don't know why you wouldn't want an optimal diet, though. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could probably survive eating like cans of beans for a long time, but just because you can do it, like, well, is that a reason to do it? I mean, <laughs> And okay, actually, just to this is a good segue because some would say, but we're all one, man. Why would you eat animals? You're just eating yourself. You're just eating a sentient being that doesn't want to die. Like, what's I've heard you criticize the all is one theory. Can you just like go into that a little bit? What do you, what do people first? Well, what do people mean by all, all is one? <laughs> hey? So, so one thing philosophy will help you, not you, but people in general do is uh, make distinctions. Okay, and a lot of bad thought and bad philosophy and worldviews is based on the inability to distinguish things. So um, are we all one? Well, there's a sense in which I think all humans share a common human nature. We all possess humanness, uh, as Aristotle would say. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that we are all identical or that all living beings are identical. So there could be distinctions in different types of living beings. So I don't believe, no, that an animals are not identical to us. They're not our ancient cousins. Um, um, I do believe that we have the right to eat meat. And I think that our own, I mean, even, even without talking about theology or religion or anything like that, just on the basis of biology and physiognomy, I think it's pretty obvious that our gut is designed to um, find the most nutrient-proficient uh, means through eating meat. Right? I mean, our, our intestines are designed to get a lot of nutrients through meat fat. So, but dude, I you're just eating low vibration, man. I, you're eating dead animals. It's making you be on I mean, <laughs> If the low vibrations remove my health problems and my irritable, irritable bowel syndrome, then I'll be a low vibrating dude. I'll, I'll be a, you know. <laughs> I'll I'll be that that low base vibration guy. Like, but... did, you, did you redo vibration? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> don't we just chant a low vibration? I don't know, but um, yeah, I don't buy into that. I mean, I will admit that um, one thing that vegans do point out is that all, our ethic of how we eat is tied to our overall worldview. Mm. I don't know their conclusion, but they are correct on that point. Mm. And uh, like even factory farming, for example, like I'm opposed to that. I don't. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Ever since I introduced meat back into my diet, animal flesh, I do not, I haven't bought any part, any factory farm meat at all. And like, but again, I'm also lucky that I live in Australia and I have access to like really right. primo wild caught meat. So, yeah. Right. We can do that too here in Tennessee. Like it's nice. easy to go out to the, like the Amish, uh, you know, um, uh, cattle, you know, cutting place, butcher or whatever. Uh, my buddy Tristan, he did it the right way too. When he moved to Ecuador, he basically just set up his own little farm that's like a self-sustaining farm out in the middle of Ecuador. So, nice. I mean, I think that's a much better way to go about this than 
definitely don't want to be in a city like relying on you know these big chains i think that's that's a nightmare so if you can not everybody can do it but if you can be you know extricated from those those uh, big city things i think it's it's best because i don't think in the next few years things are going to be going in a positive direction for like the mega cities i think those are going to be bad places to be personally mm. this is seems like revelations coming that's what i'm feeling yeah uh, it, could, it could be it could be yeah and in terms of like let's say uh, where where can we take this all right non-duality why how do you know that i'm not god really so again i would make a dis- i would make a distinction between different types of things and uh different aspects to things so um, we can share something in common that's a real metaphysical principle. For example, you and I are males. Mm-hmm. I assume you're <laughs> you non-binary, dude. Male. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. Uh, so, like, we share that in common. That's a real, I would say, metaphysical reality that exists objectively in us, but it's also had by each of us in a unique way. Like, I'm a different guy from you. You're a different guy from me. So, you you're the person. Tom, I'm the person Jay. Mm. Um, we're both males, and we both share a common humanity, but we're unique instantiations of that. Right, and so I, I can never know a, like your true essence, for example. Like I can kind of analyze yeah, your but, energy but, and your actions, but I can't really transfer into right. your consciousness and really understand what it is to be Jay. Right, and so I would say that's an example of um, the what in philosophy is called the problem of the one and the many. So all what, what was of that the, again? Can all, you repeat that? Sorry. So in the history of Western philosophy, especially uh, even in Eastern philosophy too, you have what's called the problem of the one and the many. Okay. So is reality fundamentally one? Is it fundamentally many or both? And the worldview that I have is that there's uh, both things are true at once. So objects, people, the world, there's a, there's a real unity that they share, but there's also at the same time r- real distinctions and particularity. Mm. And so a lot of the Far Eastern and New Age philosophies fall over into one side of that dialectic where they want everything to be one. Oh, all of humankind's problem is uh, particularity. Like, I think that I'm an individual, and so I need to meditate and destroy my psyche, my individuality. Mm. I would say that's a false problem. So the, the, the problem is not whether things are one or many. Uh, man's problems are moral. Right? Mm. It's not a metaphysical problem of particularity and non-duality. Now, again, I'm, I'm just trying to, to be nuanced here and say that, that we just don't locate man's problem in the fact that there's dualities and distinctions. In other words, there's nothing wrong with male, female, black, white, night, day. Those so, are complementary. They're not like exclusionary. Exactly. It's not that they're in a constant spiritual battle. They should be. They ha- they ha- well, they- yeah, exactly. It depends. When things go into chaotic disarray, then it can be in opposition. But usually, right. I feel like they're meant to harmonize with each other, work, work off yes. each other. Because even in uh, Hermeticism, and I know, I know that's like a kind of occult philosophy, but even that completely disproves the whole notion of you are God. And it explains the paradox between like free will determinism, the all, and the individual. And that's actually what I really appreciated of that because it, this... Hermeticism is supposed to be like this Eastern sort of thing, but even that disproves the whole notion of non-duality. Because I feel like 
the non-dualist they're just basically on the other side of the coin of a materialist the materialist is just only yes. focusing on matter on the physical and that's all there is and then the non-dualist right. is like matter doesn't exist all there is is god everything is god to my you know my balls this fucking rock <coughs> over here this house it's all god man there is God no good is and evil. the bunion on your shoe, yeah. on your foot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We are all Joe Rogan's bunion, dude. No, just, um, no I, I, yeah. So we would say, my, I, I have an orthodox perspective. So we would say that there's a lot of both ends and not either ors. So the, mm. I would say God does permeate the created order, but God's not identical to the created order. So it's a both end. I would say that humans can participate in divinity and be like god but that doesn't mean we're identical to god right so those are some important distinctions that a lot of the far eastern religions and the the materialists they like you said they fall into one side of that dialectic of either or um and we we just typically tend to not want to do dialectics which i will say that like zen type philosophies they have the right idea in avoiding dialectics but i don't think they have the solution to how mm. and yeah I think and they have a lot of good points and uh, you know i kind of even with buddhism for example that's where i kind of started uh, really breaking apart from the the atheistic worldview so there, there's a right. lot of value from there but you just gotta just keep going you know be honest yeah i would say there's a uh, based on the questions you're asking there's a good book called orthodoxy and the religion of the future by father seraphim rose oh right yeah I'll... it's a really good book that critiques um those far eastern views and, and he before he became a monk he was actually a uh, student of Taoism. so he was like a doing his phd on i think chinese language mm. and Taoism, like that so he took it very seriously and then he you know eventually ended up becoming an orthodox monk but it's a really good book it's worth reading but even like i i appreciate a lot of Taoist philosophies but even i remember seeing a video of someone claiming to be a Taoist, and he's like he's all about not resisting whatever happens in the universe just let it happen man but then the guy asked him like all right so if the nazis came and made you kill people would you resist <laughs> uh yes well you're not a dallas boom and then <laughs> that just goes to that ideal reality versus actual reality like in practice and that's what i i kind of find and even with the whole god thing like uh a, a metaphor that i like to use and this is what in the the Kabbalion uses actually it's like it's like when a human creates a, a digital world. Let's say Stan Lee creating the Marvel Universe, for example. The Marvel Universe is not Stan Lee, but it has the essence of his being. You know what I mean? It's not that Spider-Man is identical to the creator. And the same with us. It's like if a, paint, if a painter paints a painting, they're not identical, but it kind of has our essence. And I, kind of, I don't know, it's sort of like a similar metaphor of how we're in the likeness of God, but we're not exactly identical well, yeah, to Yeah, you would say that... So. A lot of what you're saying, uh, so a lot of the hermetic tradition in my research, um, a lot of the esoteric tradition of the West basically boils back down to some form of Platonism or Neoplatonism. Uh, what's that? And what's what's Neoplatonism? Lot... I'm, I'm not familiar. Too well, so after time. Plato, uh, in, when you get into the uh, first, second, third centuries of the early Christian era, uh, there was a lot of debate and theological discourse between the budding Christian church of that time and various flavors of Platonists. Uh, so there's there's Plotinus, there's uh, Iamblichus, there's these different figures that wrote a lot on kind of commenting on uh, what Plato had said. And so uh, sometimes this is called Middle Platonism or Neoplatonism. And so these figures tried to really 
continue the Hellenic approach as opposed to what Christianity was saying in terms of like the Bible and so forth. And sometimes there's overlap, obviously, but uh, my analysis of the Western Hermetic tradition is that it's just kind of other instantiations or iterations of Neoplatonism. So if you really want to understand oh, Hermeticism, really? you have to read like uh, Dionysius. Yeah, you have to read uh, Plotinus, Dionysius, Am- Iamblichus, these characters, Proclus, okay, um, because they're the skeletal that. outline for which all of the Hermeticists draw oh, from. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, that sounds fascinating, man. I'll definitely go to. So, get if into we that. look into that, right? So that skeletal outline that gives us the basic structure that everybody's kind of pulling from to understand the world and what you were talking about earlier with like Mandelbrot sets and stuff. Yeah, so I mean, there's there's aspects to which the Platonic view is correct, but I think that there's limitations and problems in the Platonic view that are very problematic that that Platonism can't overcome. And I think that a lot of the early Christian philosophers, Dionysius, Maximus the Confessor, they took what was good from that, transformed it, and explained how actually the fullness of that makes more sense in Christ, the Logos. Mm. So um, I know that's kind of a, a lot of stuff there, but uh, just start with something like the Divine Names by Dionysius, and you'll see what I mean. Mm. Yeah, we can we can go. It's not, it's not that long of a work, but it's really good. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely have to check it out. I didn't know that that was the the skeleton of uh, the Hermetic laws. I you think know? I think that's the case. I mean, I'm sure people would disagree, but that's okay. that's how I would. And I, I've read a lot of the Hermeticists. I, I know they're and what they're talking. Uh, like I haven't. I've only really read the Hermetic laws. I'm sure there are like deeper works going into it, but I've. Uh, it, it's definitely something that makes a, it kind of marries logic and reason in a lot of ways but sort of like a grounded spirituality and i like the fact that it even the hermetics would just scoff and kind of face palm at people shout, shouting i am god you know and i kind of like that because there's a lot of that <laughs> there's a lot of that man especially on the kind of the spiritual influence influence oh, yeah, the totally. community you know right and their they, their whole basis is yeah but i experienced it but then they don't distinguish between an experience and the interpretation of that ex- experience it's just this is what I felt at the time, therefore I am God. That's basically where the philosophy right. falls on, which doesn't make sense to me, you know. Yes, I think that we there's always a danger of um, mistaking the raw subjective experience with um, truth itself. Mm. I mean, do we know? I mean, just because you had an experience doesn't mean that that was something true. I mean, there's, I, I think that, uh, like if I look back to my, uh, bad trip experience many years ago, um, at the time I thought, Oh, I peered into reality, dude. And now looking back, um, I don't know what I was talking about. I think it was idiotic. I mean, so you have to be careful to not let emotions and the raw experience be confused with actually understanding objective reality. Yeah, yeah, and you know, it totally depends on where you go into it. Because if you're, let's say, like a young kid with no philosophical foundation, then it's very easy to be vulnerable and just kind of suggestible to whatever comes your way. And I would agree, with even like looking at myself a, a few years ago, you know, I was like, oh man, I was definitely not getting a, a clearer grasp of perception because you just kind of get, I don't know, it, it's just easy. It's like you build like this. Not, not, I'm not even just talking about psychedelics. I'm just talking about spirituality in general. I feel like it's very easy to fall into this spiritual ego trap where you think that you kind of have access to truth that other people don't and this kind of stuff. And 
Well, one thing that I think the the temptation of the drug experience, uh, and I'm not trying to discount everybody's uh, experiences because, ironically, like in my case, when I when I had a bad trip a long time ago, it actually spurred me on to read the Bible. Um, I didn't think I met God or anything crazy like that, but um, it, it had a roundabout way of kind of you know spurring me on to do that kind of stuff. And I've met a lot of people over the years who've had similar types of experiences, but. Um, there, it's just such a, there's a danger that you can be deceived, right? We can be deceived by our emotions, by our, uh, by experiences, you know, scripture Mm. even says that Satan can appear as an angel of light. And one thing that's always missing in a lot of people's, um, DMT trips or their experiences is the notion of deception or spiritual deception or discernment. Like we have to be discerning Mm. of the types of spirits that we're interacting with or um, who's coming to us, what they're saying. Uh, and I don't hear a lot of discernment when it comes to, you know, people's just raw, uh, you know, drug experiences. Mm. And, and again, it depends on which crowd you're, you're talking about. And But do you think that there can be an angel of light or like a genuine spiritual entity that really is benevolent? <laughs> Uh, I would say that's possible, but rather that it's not the the lawful means that we should use to try to interact with those kinds of spirits. Right. Have you ever debated a psychonaut? No. Maybe I can be the first, just like a friendly kind of thing, because I've never, no, be cool. I've, I've, I've never, I've never heard of anyone <laughs> That's doing it. That's a good it. idea. I've never thought about it. I've never heard of anyone in this space who would even think about going on on a debate with someone that has a different worldview. So there's a lot of kind of echo chamber stuff. I mean, I hey, if anyone's lot, listening, a lot of views. <laughs> if anyone, so, yeah. if anyone uh, is listening, and you know someone who is actually willing to do this, I just haven't met anyone. I feel like a lot of people in this space uh, kind of just kind of get stuck in their own echo chamber and don't want to get their ideas challenged because I'm cool to get whatever challenged. So, uh, and it's not even like, I don't mean uh, like, I'd, that I'd in, in, that, I think. yeah, we could do that. I'll, I think that'll be cool. I can be the first psychonaut uh, you know apologist. Is, <laughs> uh, well, do you know, I don't know if he's an apologist, but uh, there's a, uh, a guy who's very much into shamanic type of stuff, Gnostic worldviews. Okay. And Neoplatonism, uh, an academic named Peter King. Have you heard of him? No, no, no. What? Okay. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know if he does any debates, but he might be somebody who would be the, probably the most like academically minded guy in that field. Interesting. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll there's man, you, that you've given me a lot of recommendations today. I'll, I've got so many books to, <laughs> to get through. That's the, that's been the you. blessing of the, the pandemic is just, I've just been going like real deep into kind of philosophy and, and theology and all that kind of oh, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Real, real deep into it. Is there, what's one book that you, the book that you'd most recommend for understanding metaphysics and, and numbers and that, that kind of stuff, like the objective reality, that's the, the foundation of all of our rational thought? Probably the best introductory book on just that topic would be The Mind of God by Paul Davies. That's Mind a really of good God. book. Okay. I got because uh, I saw your book recommendation list. I got a, I bought a few. I got uh, the Quadrivium, which is really fascinating, especially mm-hmm. about the the science of music, which is like cause I'm a, I'm a musician, so it's like really mind blowing. 
I bought the Trivium too. Great band as well. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's a classic. <laughs> I always recommend that one. I think the Paul Davies book is on there, but yeah, he's just kind of looking at um, numbers and the structure of reality and showing how um, we can't reduce things to the physical. You know, that that chapter on Mandelbrot sets and, and Roger Penrose is is the best part of that book. Mm. Yeah, man. Um, I reckon. Do you want to just leave it at that? Because I feel like there's a lot of ways that we can go about it, but I'd like to kind of just savor it for future discussions, and I'm sure it's not going to be the last, man. Yeah, dude. I'll be honest. Absolutely. Uh, also, as well, just for those curious, because I said that I'd be uh, discussing with a vegan, and I'm actually going to get... Uh, he hasn't got back to me, but he did agree multiple times, so I'm pretty sure it's going to happen. But uh, Cosmic Skeptic, have you heard of him? He's an atheist uh, yeah. vegan, so I'm going to... Uh, Assuming things go according to plan, I'll be discussing veganism with him and my thoughts. And uh, it would be cool if, if that happens. I'd love to kind of like hook you guys up and see like this epic debate on atheism. A lot of people have called for a cosmic skeptic debate. So uh, uh, I'm definitely down for that. Hopefully I can be, you know, the guy who makes, who makes it happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be cool. I've cool. never been a mediator before, but I'd love... Uh, I don't think that I'm knowledgeable enough to like really get into a theological argument. I'm just like really exploring at this stage. But there's a lot of things right. that I resonate with. I feel like even these last few years, I've been kind of spoken against the New Age religion a lot. And some a lot of people have mm -hmm. kind of uh, shared their appreciation for that. And yeah, there's a lot right. of... Yeah, I think there's... A long way to go, but it's like fascinating stuff, man, going into theology and like really learning like real philosophy, you know, not just kind of like armchair sort of like eh, yeah. whatever feels right, dude, sort of thing. Yeah, no, you'll definitely be uh, uh, better off. You'll be a much more, I think, satisfied the the more grounded you get in philosophy. It's, yes. it's a very it's a satisfying discipline. Grounded. Yeah, that, that's why even I put in my tagline like grounded spirituality, because that's what I like to. Right have a more grounded human, you know, because my personal belief is that I'm a mortal being with a limited mind, but some spiritual people wouldn't agree with that. <laughs> it seems kind of obvious. Like You yeah, need I'm to recognize that I'm God, bro. Yeah. If you don't recognize that I'm God and that you're me because we're all God, then I'm going to destroy you, even though you don't exist because you're me. No, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, man, we'll leave it at that. And uh, like I said, we'll, we'll, discuss on a further discussion and i'll i think i might be youtube's first psychedelic apologist we'll see <laughs> at least for the one that's, discussion yeah, that's um, <laughs> if anybody does by the way since the holidays yes. are coming up if you want signed copies if you go to my website jason also there's a shop and then you can get uh all the copies are signed copies and then uh have a subscription service and people can subscribe to get the full talks and lectures. I think there's an archive of like five years of material there. So nice, man. a lot of content. I'll, I'll link your website in the description box below. And if anyone listening, you want to, you have any things that you don't agree with or any challenges that you want to bring up, please feel free to comment and we can kind of tackle it the next time. Uh, I think we've kind of just got started. There's a lot of doors that we open that we can really go down and yeah, man, that's it. Hope you awesome. Enjoyed this conversation. I hope it was fruitful for people listening at home, and it was a pleasure, dude. Yeah, man, and uh, follow me on YouTube, Jay Dyer. On of YouTube, course. So, all right. So, you, I'll, I'll link your website and your YouTube channel. Awesome. Thanks, dude. All right, brother. All, all right, the have best. A good evening. You too, man. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.